All right, morning, church. We're going to study God's Word together, so I hope you have a copy of the Scriptures. If you'd open up to the book of Acts, chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, and before we uh, dive into the Word this morning, I just want to remind you of an initiative that we began Connect Sunday one year ago. And that initiative, as many of you know, was called Too Strong. And it was named Too Strong because it runs for two years, so we're halfway through runs for two years, and it has two different points of focus or emphasis. The first year was growing strong as a church, and year two is going strong to our community. So this past year, we've been talking a lot about growing strong as a church. We've talked about ecclesiology. We've done focus studies on what the church is and what the church does. We've done house-to-house events where hundreds of us have been in each other's homes for, for fellowship and, and so forth. A lot of different things. And then we ended year one in in the month of May by doing basically the membership class was plugged into Sunday morning on three weeks and that series was called All In as a way of saying, if you've been attending and you feel like the Lord is maybe calling you to this church, dive in. And so, Lord willing, it may be uh, this year that we add 300 or more members to our church. It's been an incredible response on, uh, on the part of people who have been coming to our church and so we're just deeply thankful for this past year. But then pivoting into year two was about going strong to our community. And so just like we had aims and certain things that we put handles on in year one, the same thing's gonna happen now in year two. So here's the goal of year two as a reminder for us. To challenge, equip, and mobilize our faith family to live as faithful gospel witnesses through the regular rhythms of daily life. So practically, what does that mean to put some handles on that? It means we want to equip you in really intentional ways this year to be confident in personal evangelism, to be competent in the gospel this year. We want to, as well, with, along with that, we want to promote a culture of gospel welcome, of gospel hospitality. We want to learn better how to, how to neighbor well, how to turn facing out, hold hands, not just facing in, which has been year one, but holding hands facing out to our neighbors, our coworkers, students on your campus, and so forth. So we want to encourage a culture of gospel hospitality. We want to increase our emphasis on prayer. You see, the generation of the church that made the biggest impact on the world was the people who prayed. And so we want to increase our emphasis on personal prayer and corporate prayer, and all of those things are gunning for one big goal, is the hope of seeing people around us find life through faith in Jesus Christ. Wouldn't it be awesome if at the end of the year we look back and see that there have been many people who were not trusting in Jesus Christ, and yet here they are, and they enter into the waters. The waters are stirred week after week. Wouldn't that be awesome? That would be amazing. So I'm excited. I hope you're excited as we uh, pivot into year two. All right, let's open the word, Acts chapter 12. I'm going to read it in sections. I'm not going to read the whole thing right now. But I want to just set it up with this illustration. You know, my wife and I, Paula and I, were uh, traveling. We, we drove, took a 1,300-mile drive to Colorado to drop off our son, Will, to, who's joining the staff of a great church up there, Storyline Church, and Will is going to join as the associate worship minister at that church. So, we did an audiobook for the big long drive up there and we had heard recommendation from friends that this was a good audiobook so we checked it out. I went online and, and searched and found out some things about it. One review about the book described it this way. A comedian who turned his heartbreak into comedy. 
So that was interesting to me. So we went ahead and downloaded it and listened to it. The author turns out, it's a true story, and the author himself is reading it in the audiobook. It turns out he near, very nearly lost both his faith and his marriage. But he's a, he's a comedian, and he's come out on the other side. So he's looking back at it, and he's telling the story in a way that sometimes you're just laughing out loud at the hilarity of various moments that happen along the way. And so you're laughing one second, and then the next second, you're, you're, you're hearing the story, and you're thinking, how does anyone bounce back from this? How does anybody recover from this? I think the most, personally, my most striking takeaway from the book was the theme of resiliency. So we don't live in a cultural moment where I don't think our culture is going to teach us to become resilient. This, this idea of staying in it, sticking with it, endurance. Our culture is training us and teaching us instead to seek safety in all the ways that we possibly can. If, insofar as we possibly can, let's wrap our lives in bubble wrap and let's try to walk through life in the safest way possible. You contrast our modern day with ancient times, biblical times and prior to biblical times. So ancient times, for example, Spartan mothers were not helicopter parents. Spartan mothers, when their sons were going off to war, the Spartan mothers would famously say, come back with your shield or on it, which was their way of saying, if you come back alive and you're not carrying your shield, it means you fled from the battle. So either come back because the boys won and you're carrying your shield or come back because the shield is your stretcher. What about resiliency of faith? Think about resiliency in the category of our spiritual life. The great Christian apologist G.K. Chesterton famously said this, Jesus promised his disciples three things. That they would be completely fearless, absurdly happy, and in constant trouble. You think about things that we read in the pages of the New Testament, the New Testament book of James, if you're familiar with the book of James. It starts on this note. Count it all joy when you face various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces something. It produces endurance. In other words, James starts his letter on the theme of resiliency of faith. There's something really strange about faith, and it's this, the more it's tested, the stronger it gets. That we don't do an end run around trials and affliction and suffering to get to resilient faith. There's only one way to resilient faith, and resilient faith is found on the far side of affliction, on the far side of hardship. We've been studying the book of Acts we started Connect Sunday last year in Acts chapter 1. We walked through a section of Acts and then we did some other studies in different places in God's word. What we've seen all along is that the Christians in that time in the first century, they, they're living out their faith in an extremely unsafe environment, a hostile environment. And I think it's important just to realize, here we are in Acts chapter 12, but the Christian faith is not like 50 years old by now. Like it was the legendary world-changing weekend of the crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus followed 50 days later by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit empowering the church for mission. That happened 14 years ago. So the church is a teenager. The church is in middle school. 
in Acts chapter 12, all right? And yet, even though the church is very young, this fledgling upstart movement where they're gangly and figuring out their way forward, there's a resiliency about the Christians that is so provocative and so remarkable. And in Acts chapter 12, we're gonna see that resilient faith is cultivated when your hardest days are met with trusting prayer and confidence in the purpose of God. I'll say that again, even though it's not in your notes because I wrote it this morning. Resilient faith (laughs) is cultivated when your hardest days are met with trusting prayer and confidence in the purpose of God. So if you're taking notes, the first thing we see is troubled people. And I hope you got your Bible still open. Acts chapter 12, beginning in verse one. About that time, King Herod violently attacked some who belonged to the church, and he executed James, John's brother, with the sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter too during the festival of unleavened bread. After the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of four soldiers each to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison but the church was praying fervently to God for him. So why do we talk about troubled people as point number one? Because we're not even out of verse two before Luke tells us, Luke the historian tells us, Herod killed James. That was not lost on this community of believers. Um, Stephen was martyred in Acts chapter six. But this is the first of the apostles. There's only 12 apostles All 12 chairs were filled in Acts chapter 2, and James was one of them. If you just want to get the gravity of the 12 apostles, we find out in the New Testament that in the new creation, there are 12 thrones, and on one of those thrones is the name of James. This is a a mover and shaker. This is a huge uh, leader in the church. So just for reference if the face helps with the name. If you're watching The Chosen, Big James is this guy. All right? So that might help you with put a face with the name. That's Big James. The gravity of seeing Big James go down, Big James taken out by Herod, would have been incredibly significant for the early church. It would have shaken them to the core. You ever find yourself um, asking the question, what on earth is God doing? I think that's probably what the early church felt when, when they heard that James was killed, beheaded by Herod. What on earth is God doing? I wonder if you've ever had that experience in your life where you look out at what's happening right around you or in your world and you just say, I can't explain this. I, I, God, I know that you're sovereign and I know that you're good. I'm just saying, I can't figure out how that adds up right now. I, I can't understand how you're gonna get glory, how this could possibly work for my good. In our trials, that's what we often wonder. What on earth is God doing? You bring that question, what on earth is God doing, into these early verses, the answer coming back out of Acts 12 seems to be he's losing major role players. That's what he's doing. In Acts so far, the apostles have taken a beating, but until now, they've managed to stay alive. In our house, in the Mason house, uh, when our boys were really young, 
Uh, Ellie might not have even been born yet, or maybe she was a baby. We bought our first game system, and it was a little box called a GameCube. Apparently a few people have it. <laughs> we bought a GameCube, and we bought, uh, it was a used GameCube, and it came with a couple games, and one of the games that we got was Lord of the Rings. And there was one particular level, me and my young, my boys were super young at the time. One of the things that we were doing is we were just going level after level and beating level after level. And then we got to a level we could not beat. And we, we must have played that level 50 times. We could not beat that level. And so I had to do an internet search, how to beat level whatever it is, you know. Um, and I learned something. When I, when I typed in and Googled how to beat level eight on this game, I, I learned that there are two ways to win a game. You can take the time to actually get better and conquer the level, or you can plug in what's called a cheat code. And that was kind of one of those cheat code. What? Uh, what does this mean? You know, and it changed everything because there was a series of buttons, and if you push them in the proper order, your characters are suddenly invincible. So next thing you know, we're walking into level nine. We could never defeat it before, but we're walking into level nine, and we're literally all invincible. I mean, we're all walking. It's like a multiplayer game. We're walking through this level, and just the orcs are swinging their swords, but it's just, suddenly they're like nerf swords. It was just hilarious. The wolves of Isengard, they're coming down from the hill, and they're like labradoodles. Like, they were so cute. They could do nothing to us. They were just, you know, gumming us. They couldn't do anything to us. We were completely unaffected by by them. Here's the thing, you, you read the book of Acts and you realize God wins. God wins in Acts, but there are no cheat codes. There is no invincibility code. We, we saw that when the apostles were beaten half to death in Acts 5, we saw it when Stephen was stoned to death in Acts 6, and now we see it when James loses his head in Acts chapter 12. And what it looks like to us, what it may have looked like to the early church, is it looks like if there's anybody who's sovereign on the scene in Acts chapter 12, that person is Herod. Everything Herod says happens. Herod says, arrest James. They arrest James. Herod says, kill James. They kill James. Arrest Peter. They arrest Peter. Everything Herod says is happening. It looks like Herod is sovereign, and we see what's motivating him. If you look down in verse 2, he executed James, John's brother, with the sword, when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter too. So in other words, that's, that's Herod's way of saying, if you like what I did to James, wait till you see when I get my hands on Peter. The guy who the first 12 chapters of Acts have really been about. The camera crew has traveled with Peter the entire first 12 chapters of Acts and now Herod's got Peter in his grip. Interesting thing about the way that Luke tells this story under divine inspiration is it's like he's constantly hinting at other things. It's like there's these deja vu moments. Like we've seen that before. We've heard that before somewhere. And where you heard it before is when you read the gospels, the passion of Christ, the stories of the passion of Christ, that, that massive landslide weekend where Jesus was crucified. Very similar kinds of things are happening in both of these accounts. Luke seems to be setting them right next to each other. So in other words, in both weekends, it happens on the Jewish Passover festival weekend. In both situations, the passion of the Christ and the suffering and arrest of Peter, there's an arrest and there's a trial and there's an execution. Both Herod and earlier Pontius Pilate did the things that they did to satisfy the crowds or to please the Jews. Guards, in both cases, are posted to preempt escape routes or rescue operations. 
There's certain things that as we're reading the story, it's reminding us. We've read something that's so similar in terms of its pattern. It's like Luke, in writing these words in Acts, he wants us to see that the apostles are walking in the footsteps of Jesus. That the Christ who had said to them earlier, follow me, and Luke is saying, and look at, they are. They're following him. Stephen Curtis Chapman fans are in the room, um, and if you're in the room and you're a Stephen Curtis Chapman fan, the likelihood is you're about my age, because he was writing like late 80s and 90s, we were all rocking out to uh, The Great Adventure and a number of other <laughs> greatest hits. Well, in 1990, one of the great, all-time great uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman songs came out, and it was entitled, For the Sake of the Call. And now it's going to be playing in your head. If you're familiar with that song, <laughs> be playing in your head all day long. So I'm turning on Spotify on my way out of the parking lot. In the song, Stephen Curtis Chapman relates the, the story of Jesus walking up and inviting disciples to follow him and not giving them a schedule of coming events, unsafe and dangerous as they would be, and yet they just followed him. Here's, here's what he writes in verse one. Nobody stood and applauded them so they knew from the start this road would not lead to fame. All they really knew for sure was Jesus had called to them. He said, come follow me, and they came. With reckless abandon, they came. Real question for you this morning, what kind of person do you want God to make you into? In the moment by moment of my daily life, I'll confess to you, what I want is I want God to make it easy. But deep down, I don't think I'm alone in saying, I want God to make me resilient. I, I wanna still be in it. I wanna have moxie. I wanna have resiliency. And faith doesn't become resilient if we're hedged in from all hardship. If God gave us the bubble wrap to walk through life, our character wouldn't change. It would be too easy, it would be too comfortable, we wouldn't become resilient. God's word teaches us to expect hardship. Jesus promised it, in this world, you will have tribulation. So James dies, you can imagine the church is shaken, you can imagine them saying, what on earth is God doing, and in a way, who could blame them for wondering what on earth God is doing? The rescue of Peter, which is gonna happen momentarily, makes the death of James even more of a head scratcher, right? Because we see the church praying for Peter in verse five. Did they not pray for James? I'll guarantee you they prayed for James. When James was arrested, they prayed for James. Would it have been too much trouble? Would it have been too much trouble for God to do for James what he is about to do for Peter? What kingdom gain comes from James getting killed? What on earth is God doing? Not, not that we always have an explanation for what on earth God is doing in moments of suffering because there, a lot of times suffering is a mystery and we can't explain it. But in this particular case, we can explain it. Because as we read this story, it might remind you of things if you've read earlier in the pages of the New Testament. Back in the Gospel of Mark, you get to eavesdrop on a conversation between Jesus and Big James. And Big James is standing right next to his brother John, 
and they're gunning for VIP seats in heaven. And here's how the conversation goes down. They say to Jesus, allow us, me and my bro here, allow us to sit at your right and at your left hand in glory. It's a pretty audacious claim. We want to flank the Lord of glory in heaven. (laughs) Give us that privilege. And here's what Jesus said, verse 38 of Mark 10. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or to be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We are able, they told him. (laughs) Jesus said to them, you will. You will drink the cup I drink and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. And you can just imagine them fist bumping each other. James and John, they're fist bumping. Yes, we get the seats. We're gonna drink the cup, we're gonna do the baptism thing, and then we're gonna get the seats. Jesus said, I didn't promise the seats, but I did promise the cup. You will drink the cup. And if they're fist bumping, they're fist bumping because they don't realize that the cup is a metaphor for something very unpleasant in their future. Here we are in Acts chapter 12. 14 years ago, James was jockeying for VIP seats in heaven. 14 years later, James is resilient in faith. 14 years later in Acts chapter 12, he's holding the cup of martyrdom and he says, bottoms up. He's become resilient. In in many ways, the Acts of the Apostles is is the coming of age story for the apostles. Resiliency says this, God, I don't just trust you when I'm blessed, I trust you when it's hard. I trust you when it's hard. You know, the the New Testament is packed with words of hope for people walking through hardship. The New Testament is packed with the assumption that it's going to be hard. Peter would say to people who were facing suffering and affliction in all kinds of ways, and he would write a letter, 1 and 2 Peter, and in it he would say, brothers and sisters, don't be surprised by the fiery trials as if something strange is happening to you. We knew it was going to be hard. We knew we were going to walk with the wind in our face. We knew that on day one when we trusted Jesus Christ. Look, there's a reason that the Christian uniform in Ephesians chapter 6 isn't a t-shirt and sweatpants. It's put this helmet on. Put this breastplate on. Hold this here sword. Hold this here shield. And if you don't, you're not going to make it. You're going to need all this stuff And you're not going to be able to take it off until, as Pilgrim's Progress writes, you cross over the Jordan River into the celestial city. That's when we shed the armor. You ask the question from Acts chapter 12, what on earth is God doing? The answer comes back. He's governing our trials, even our death, according to his wisdom. So we see troubled people, number one. And second, trusting prayer. Trusting prayer. Look at verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying fervently to God for him. Love how those two sit right next to each other, in prison, but praying. It's no secret that I love the Psalms. One of the things that I love about the Psalms is is particularly this, is the Psalms is an entire book that sits at the intersection of troubled people and trusting prayer. It's what the book is. Troubled people trusting God in prayer. 
Not, not just in the Old Testament. Come over in and watch Jesus himself. Watch him walk to his most troubling hour. The Greek word that's used to describe Jesus praying in the garden is agonizomai. He is agonizing in the garden. And what does he do when his soul is in agony? He prays. And he doesn't just pray. He says, hey, brothers, watch with me for an hour. Stand with me in prayer. He wants his friends. He wants his community with him in solidarity in prayer. Here's the reality for us. Sometimes God sustains us in the storm as we trust him in prayer. And sometimes as we trust him in prayer, God stills the storm. But God ultimately is in charge. Unless we think that there's only one way to pray, namely to pray for God to sustain us while we walk through the agony and never, there's no deliverance, just keep reading the story of what happens in Acts chapter 12. The church prays, God hears, chains start rattling, prison doors start opening of their own accord. God answers their prayer and delivers, delivers Peter. Bold requests in prayer don't threaten the sovereignty of God. They exalt it. These people, they start asking for big, awesome, mind-blowing, miraculous things. Peter is clamped down. Sixteen guards have been stationed to make sure the bro can't get out. And they're saying, God, you got options. We ask great things because he's a great God. Charles Spurgeon famously said that. Ask great things for you are before a great throne. (laughs) We know he's able. The church in the book of Acts didn't pray safe prayers. And they didn't pray prayers that were just informed by recent history. They didn't say, yeah, well, you know, we prayed last time and God let James die, so let's adjust our prayers in light of recent events. No, they prayed like God has options. He has the option to sustain the person while they go bottoms up with a cup of martyrdom, or he has the option to break, break them out of jail and set prisoners free. God's got options. I'm so convicted by the prayer life of the early church. My prayers don't demonstrate so often. They don't demonstrate resiliency like this. My prayers sometimes don't back, bounce back from the normal flow of events in a fallen world, and so I end up finding myself praying sleepy, small expectation prayers. This is a mighty act. Acts 12 is a mighty act of God. Matter of fact, it's a mighty act, I think, that's echoing an earlier mighty act. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, the mightiest act of God of all deliverance is the story of the Exodus. And I think Luke is riffing on the things that happened in the book of Exodus and the story of the Exodus. Luke is like a DJ. So, so DJs can take an old song keep the melody, and then put it into a different groove. You could have a John Denver song with a techno groove, right? So it's mainly, you can still hear sunshine on my shoulder makes me happy, but it's set to this entirely different kind of beat, right? In that way, it's like Luke is a DJ. He's remixing things we've heard before, melody lines of Exodus, and he's pulling them in and setting them to a different groove. Luke lets us hear echoes of the story of Exodus. If you're taking notes, What happens in the book of Exodus? Well, you see affliction. In that particular case, it was from Pharaoh, but here it's not from Pharaoh, it's from Herod. You see death that led to all this. In that particular case, it was the death of the sons of 
of the 12 tribes of Israel who were being thrown into the Nile River. But here is the death of one of the 12 apostles. And then you hear the people of God crying out. Israel's crying out in chains. Well, in this particular case, it's not Israel crying out in chains, but it's the church crying out on behalf of Peter who's in chains. So there's these these things, these deja vu kinds of things that remind us, even in the act of deliverance itself, we hear echoes of the Exodus. So Peter, for example, think about it. Peter was about to be killed at Passover by a wicked king, but there's an angel coming late tonight, and the angel says what when he gets there? Get dressed, put your sandals on, make haste and follow me. Sounds very much like the things that we've seen all the way back in the pages of Exodus. The stunning thing is it's not a miracle that Peter seems to be expecting. The angel doesn't get there and Peter is saying, I knew you'd come. Peter is snoring in verse six. He's out like a light. And don't you love the angel in verse seven? I love how the ESV translates it. A light shone in the cell The angel struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up. (laughs) It's kind of like how my mom woke me up. Didn't feel angelic, but apparently it was. And (laughs) even when he's awake, in verse nine, he is so dreary-eyed, he thinks the whole thing is a vision. In effect, Peter sleeps through the whole act of rescue. Just follow along in your copy of God's word, verse nine. So the angel gets there. And Peter went out and followed, and he did not know that what the angel did was really happening. And he thought that he was seeing a vision. After they passed the first and second guards, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened to them by itself. They went outside and passed one street, and suddenly the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me. You think you're four blocks from the town jail. He's just waking up to the reality that this all actually transpired and happened. Now I know for certain, he clues in, that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp and from all that the Jewish people expected. I suspect that Charles Wesley's great hymn, And Can It Be, might have taken its inspiration from Acts chapter 12. When Wesley wrote these words, long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's Charles Wesley a couple centuries ago saying, this awakening in Acts chapter 12 should remind you, believer, of your salvation. Namely, you were chained up and out cold. You were utterly immobilized by your sin. You were incapable of waking yourself up. You were incapable of setting yourself free. But God, God wakes the dead. God's spirit opened prison doors. And that's your testimony. If you've believed in Jesus, that's your testimony. Realize Realize this morning, this message about Jesus Christ, his death on the cross to pay the price for your sins and my sins, his resurrection which gives hope to all who believe that death can never have the last word. That message about Christ the Lord 
is how God wakes you up. I pray that even reminding us of that story that God might wake people up right here, right now and stir you and pull you out of bondage and sin and into light and into freedom. Believe it. You know what I find encouraging? I find, I find it really encouraging that here's the church and they're praying for a miracle and then they're blown away when it actually happens. They, they're in disbelief when Peter shows up at the door. They actually don't believe it. Here's what happens. If you're following along in verse 12, Peter's out. He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was called Mark, that Mark's going to give us a gospel that bears his name momentarily. So comes to the house of the mother of John, who's called Mark, where many had assembled and were praying. They're praying for Peter. Peter's outside. He knocked at the door on the outer gate and a servant named Rhoda came to answer. I love Rhoda. She recognized Peter's voice and because of her joy, she did not open the gate, <laughs> but ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the outer gate. You're out of your mind, they told her. But she kept insisting that it was true. And they said, it's his angel. Peter, however, kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. Luke seems to be writing with intentional humor. Here's what's going on inside the house. They're gaslighting poor Rhoda. Peter is out there literally like, somebody let me in. <laughs> They've been praying for his release. He's out there and they're saying, Rhoda, we shouldn't have sent you to the gate because it's probably his angel or whatever. This is not just, this is not just a showdown between the power of the empire and the power of God. It's a showdown between the power of the empire and the power of God unleashed in response to the prayers of his people. That last phrase is absolutely pivotal for understanding Acts chapter 12. You see the power of God unleashed in response to the prayers of his people. In other words, if the church had concluded that God was powerless in the case of James, that Herod was sovereign in the case of James, and therefore why would we even pray for Peter? Verse 6 through 19 make it abundantly clear that God can do what he wants when he wants. And no powers can stop him. Herod can't stop him. The, the 16 guards can't stop him. No one can stop him. Resiliency asks God to do great things, then trusts him with whatever happens next. It's not afraid to ask for specific, awesome, miraculous, even supernatural things, and yet there's still an open hand to trust him with whatever happens next. Let me put it this way. We need to have a theological category for both martyrdom and miracle. For James's cup of affliction and Peter's drama of deliverance. Both are here. Both occur right here in our passage. Troubled people trusting prayer and the God who delivers. Verse 21. On the appointed day, so now we're coming to Herod. On the appointed day, dressed in royal robes and seated on the throne, Herod delivered a speech to them. And the assembled people began to shout, it's the voice of a God and not of a man. At once an angel of the Lord 
struck him because he did not give the glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died, but the word of God spread and multiplied. Herod gave lip service to the Passover festival early in this chapter because it would energize his base and please his constituents. That's why he did it. How do you know that he wasn't a true bone-deep Israelite monotheist? Because you check him out a few verses later and after he's given the speech and the people call him a god, he cups his ear and wants more of it. He enjoys it. Herod thinks here at the end of Acts 12, He thinks he can kill God's messengers and set himself up as an object of worship. And he thinks that until he gets a life-changing theology lesson that goes something like this. The one true God is a God of justice. And he shares his glory with no one. Luke's retelling of this story seems to drip with satire. As we get here to the end of the passage, Herod comes out and he's draped and ornamented in royal robes and he's sitting on his throne and he's cupping his ear to the praise of the masses, not realizing he's got about 30 seconds to live. Resiliency recognizes God's sovereignty and God's unstoppable purposes. Resiliency is what the church should be about. Resiliency recognizes when we listen to Psalm 2 and it says the kings of the earth have taken counsel and they're all working together to overthrow God and his sovereign purposes. And what's the next sound you hear in Psalm 2? God laughing at them. Little puppet kings parading themselves, inflating their chests. They think they're so mighty and so strong. The church doesn't fret The church doesn't fret, why? Because we know who holds the future. We know how things shake out. We're playing with loaded dice. We know, right, we know God is going to reverse the curse. We know all the nations are gonna be there and every tribe is gonna give him praise. We know that, it's not a hypothesis, it's not a guess, it's a certainty. When God breaks through the eastern skies, every knee will bow, we know that. He will get the victory in every promise he made will be realized. Acts 12 features the God of the plot twist. And here's how it goes out, goes down. Herod executes James. Herod loses Peter. God executes Herod. (laughs) You just see the God of the plot twist, right? A story that begins in Acts chapter 12. It begins with James dead, Peter in prison, Herod on top. And it ends with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word increasing. Who saw that coming in the early goings of Acts chapter 12? Note the phrases back to back in verse 23. Herod died, but the word multiplied. Herod died, but the word was spreading. Who's really sovereign? When doubt asks, what on earth is God doing? Resiliency says, he's working. He's working. Give him space. He's working. Trust him. He's working. Keep waiting. He's working. Keep praying. He's working amidst the suffering and resiliency of his people. He's working salvation and deliverance on behalf of the humble. He's working as he exercises dominion over kings and kingdoms. He's working. What we need, Christian friends, is resiliency. And we won't get it by coasting. We won't drift into endurance. Some of you this morning 
you're in a season where you're realizing the enemy of your soul is playing with live ammo. And you've taken fire. And you're feeling it. What do you do? Well, well let's just start where it needs to start. Maybe, you've, maybe you're here and you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ. Well, that, that's where we gotta begin. We gotta put our trust in the one true king who is sovereign over all. Have you believed in Jesus who died on the cross in your place for your sins? Here's your next move. Turn your back on sin, turn your face toward Jesus, and turn your face toward his word with a readiness to obey. Then what? Well, so now I'm in the kingdom. Now I'm one of his subjects. I'm one of his sons and one of his daughters. Now join your life to Christians because you're going to need comrades. You're going to need a church that's going to pray for you when you're in prison, when you're in the storm, you're not going to make it out. You're not going to make it to the end, and neither will I without regular encouragement. So that's two things. And the third is this. Don't chase safety. Throw your life into the arms of a sovereign God and put your hope in his certain coming victory. That's you and me becoming resilient.